there was a few years ago, um, Lloyd's TSB, the bank, was in the media quite heavily for their um, online banking services going down. It wasn't really the fact that it went down, but it was the fact that their communication was so terrible and then there was there was nothing on the back of it. But if they'd have been more prepared, if they'd have had the like the, the proactive ability to get in touch with people and say, you know, hey, do you know what? Online service is going to be down for a little while. We're really, really sorry. It'll be back up shortly. Then they could have remediated a significant amount of the bad press that they got. But they were in the news for days and days because of this issue. And that's just one example of many. Today, Greg and I are speaking with Katie Stabler, recently voted one of the top 50 global CX influencers. We're talking about captive customers, customer service recovery, and why it is important to plan to fail. I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on LinkedIn. And with this introduction already long enough, let's get to this episode. and welcome to another CX Insider podcast episode. This is Valentina speaking, joined by Greg, and today I invited Katie Stabler, Director of Customer Experience at Cultivate Customer Experience, also known as the Queen of Customer Service Recovery and Customer Experience Provocateur. So let's discuss some thought-provoking CX ideas today. That was a lot of customer experience in the last 10 seconds. Um, Hello, Greg and Katie. Thank you for coming on our podcast. How are you? I am great. Thank you. Very happy to be here today. Yeah, great to be here. So Katie, you got into CX when you were working in the non-profit, non-for-profit sector, a sector in which I would not normally guess organizations focus on customer experience because as blunt as it may sound, but I say it for the sake of the argument, I think that quite a few nonprofit businesses actually ask themselves, why should we focus on customer experience? So how did you actually um, end up with in the customer experience when you were working for nonprofit? Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I am um, too many years ago to mention now, straight out of uni, went straight into the not-for-profit sector, uh, starting in disability organizations and, and then moving predominantly into um, debt management. And, you know, I always say that you you can't get much more of an organically customer-centric organization than a not-for-profit organization or a charity. Um, because the very premise of them is that, that they are there to serve their customers or their clients or the service users. So there's a really um, natural instinct to be customer centric. And you also tend to find that the people who work within those organizations, you know, typically being blunt, low paid, um, but they're there for a reason. They're there because they really have a passion and a care for the organization. So they're they're really in it skin deep. So naturally yeah they're incredibly customer centric and you know like metrics measurement they don't typically come into play that much you're not really asking you know happy how happy were you with our service because generally speaking they don't leave the service until there's an end result so I would say all my roles within the kind of decade that I spent in the not-for-profit sector were informally customer experience related they didn't necessarily have a customer experience title um, but it was all very much around service design based around users and providing you know the excellent service that the service users need. It wasn't until I moved out of the not-for-profit sector 
still staying in the debt management sector, but moving from gamekeeper to poacher, as it were. And I moved into the corporate world of debt collection that I took on my first explicit customer experience title. Fascinating. What an interesting uh, career that you've had so far. <laughs> really is interesting. What what a fascinating way to, to, to obviously look at customer experience in, in uh, those particular, well, contrasting industries, let's say. Katie, one question I had was, when we spoke briefly previously, uh, you talked about your approach when working with organizations to improve their customer experience strategy. And I understand that part of your approach or, or central to your approach is really making sure you speak to many departments and, and management versus the service staff. But it'd be great to maybe start with, you know, what were some of the challenges that you came across within organizations where you were looking at how they adopt perhaps a new customer experience strategy? You know, what were those challenges that you identified maybe across those different departments and different roles? Yeah. So, I mean, if we if we go back to that example of moving into the, the corporate sector of debt collection, um, the reason I did that is because it was a fantastic opportunity to really be a voice for the customer and advocate for the customer in an industry which had had historically very little of that. Um, and I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that customer experience and debt collection doesn't necessarily go hand in hand. You wouldn't pair them together. So I guess it also won't surprise you to find that when I stepped into that organization, despite the fact that they hired me, they were looking for that role and they wanted to start to embed more of a customer centric culture. There were a lot of hurdles within that organization to jump because it was you know, just the very nature of the industry. It's not customer um, facing. So uh, the barriers, <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I think the, 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 the strongest thing really and the first thing to start with is that it's um, an organization that has got heritage. So, you know, it's over 10 years of, of age, given the industry that it was in. It had a lot of historical attitudes and historical cultural values, which don't particularly pair very well with a customer facing culture. So right from the beginning, the, the biggest thing, um, the biggest barrier that I'd faced there was really just trying to work with departments across the organization to get a sense of what they felt customer experience was and what that meant to them. And then how we could convert that really into a language which makes sense to them. I mean, going back to like the really basics, just so you can really get a picture of what I mean when I'm talking about like old cultural attitudes, is when I started at that organization there were still people who worked there who didn't refer to the customer as a customer, but referred to them as a debtor. And that was also part and parcel of the regulation that we were in. So it was a highly regulated industry and it's a highly legally regulated industry. So there's a lot of legal terminology that comes with, with that kind of regulation. And all of that just built a sense that the customer was very, very distant from the organization. They were, they were, they were almost not considered the the bread and butter of the organization which most organizations would absolutely consider their customer the bread and butter so the biggest challenge to start with was absolutely just trying to get a sense of where were they at culturally and how do we start to progress that and and so what did you do or how did you change the mindset of this like col corporate culture did you face any um, resistance when you first came into that company yeah, absolutely. I think one of the um, 
that one of the things that we recognize quite early days is that if you look across the organization, it's a very large organization, you know, 1,500 employees, um, 500 uh, frontline contact center staff, big departments with big budgets. And then if you looked at the customer experience department, there's just initially two people, small budget, and that speaks volumes. So it already showed you that, you know, look, they're on an early journey. They wanted to develop the customer experience strategy, but very, very early days. So the first thing to do really was, as I mentioned before, you know, get out and speak to those departments and, and get an understanding of where they're at and where they want to be. And then start to work on that customer experience strategy, which very closely ties in to the operational strategy, um, making sure that absolutely as far as possible, as many people from different departments were engaged in that strategy design. So making sure that right from the outset at the highest level, the people who needed to be engaged were engaged and they were bought in from the beginning. And I'm not saying that different department leads were 100% bought in from the beginning. That certainly wasn't the case. It took time and it took real demonstration of the benefit of customer experience initiatives to really start to change that culture. And that absolutely took uh, a couple of years to get to a position where you'd really start to recognize that. But absolutely having their buy-in right from day one or or starting to get their buy-in from day one was absolutely crucial. And the other thing that was uh, we recognised was quite important within our department was that there was a bit of a sense of customer experience being fluffy. Um, and you see this across industries. And I think unless you are really strongly invested in customer experience, this is still a common misconception that it is the fluffy, nice thing that you have in the corner. And it absolutely isn't that, you know, customer experience management is often the negatives. It's often people pointing out the things that we're doing wrong and working to improve them. But to try and alleviate that fluffy understanding of customer or a fluffy perception of customer experience, one of the first things that the, the senior people in our CX team went and did was got accredited. So we worked with the Customer Experience Professional Association, um, you know, went through the CCXP exam, And that was really with an ambition to try and demonstrate across the organization that actually, you know, this isn't a fluffy um, side bit that we're just ticking a box with. Actually, you know, we're we're, we're serious people here to make a difference. And I think trying to change the minds and the perceptions towards customer experience was one of the first steps in our agenda. Fantastic. And I guess, Katie, a question I would have from going on some of the things you just said there. One thing that fascinates me, always has done, is dynamics for organizations where you have captive customers and how you've touched on there a number of examples, how people just do not see customer experience as any form of priority in in a large number of those dynamics. And I'd say that debt collection, like you say, is is, is probably (laughs) one of those where you've seen it. I'd say you could argue that you also see that across many other very core services to our society, such as government, local government, potentially healthcare as well in terms of patient experience. Not to say all of those are necessarily bad customer experiences, but more often than not, customer experience is not always well and truly at the heart of what they're trying to achieve just because of the dynamic of the business. Anyway, I guess my question would be, (laughs) is that what are the obvious benefits to those types of organizations? So ones that do have captive customers, what are the benefits that they can uh, gain by actually really turning that approach on its head and looking at customer experience and trying to ex- achieve a level of excellence in that space. 
Do you know, I absolutely love the topic of captive customers because it's not something that is really very well discussed. I mean, they exist and we'd like they're out there, but it's not really um, a, a well discussed topic in the industry. And, and essentially, a captive customer is anybody who doesn't really choose to be your customer. Um, so when I worked in the debt collection sector, that was really obvious. Of course, these customers didn't want to be in debt. And of course, they didn't want to have a debt collector um, being somebody who's engaging with them. So that's a really easy way of identifying captive customer. But just like you said, you know, NHS captive customer, UGP to an extent, you're a captive customer, utility mm -hmm. companies. But you can also think of it um, in a sense of uh, like circumstances. So cost captives. You might not want to fly with Ryanair, for example, but they're the cheapest option and that's the option that you've got available to you. So in a sense, you're captive by your cost. And the same with locality, you know, think of your local shop, you might live in a city where you've got an abundance of things on your doorstep and you've got so much choice, or you may live in more of a rural village. And unless you're going to travel 15 miles out of the way, you're stuck with your local corner shop. And to a degree, that's a captive customer. So it's really easy, as you mm. say, to kind of fall into a bit of a sense of um, comfort, really, that, you know, these customers are probably going to stick with you through thick and thin because they don't really have much choice. But the benefits can be just absolutely tenfold in so many ways. So in the debt collection industry, for example, a really key benefit is that I'm, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that people in debt often bury their head in the sand and don't want to deal with it because it's got a, a misconception of being scary. You know, these big, scary people knocking on the door, don't want to deal with it, I can't deal with it. If you're providing an excellent customer experience to people who are experiencing debt, and they're not frightened to pick up the phone, and they know that there's flexible solutions, then you're already seeing the benefits because you're actually having engaged customers, which otherwise would be those customers that you may be having to call however many times and may never get to speak to. So just offering a good service and knowing that you're there and there is options, there is flexibility, you straight away build up engagement. And the same goes for things like utility companies, you know, if you've got a customer who is suffering with a problem and you've absolutely delivered rubbish customer service over the last few times they've called, then what's the likelihood that they're going to call and maybe they'll just continue to suffer and then maybe, I don't know, they'll miss a payment and then maybe the arrears will build. Again, if you can offer a good customer experience and make sure that if a customer does experience a problem and they know they can call you right from the offset, then brilliant. And, I mean, I could go on, <laughs> but just to build on that, Please do. <laughs> Reputation. <laughs> Reputation and regulation. So, you know, if you, it, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, really. You want a positive reputation. And let's face it, as customers of any service, we are always so quick now to jump on social media and to leave reviews. And, you know, whether or not you're a debt collection company, a utilities company, a local corner store, or the NHS, you want positive news stories floating around. You don't want horrible news stories of bad experience and bad service. And then I think the, the biggest thing as well is employee satisfaction. So if you're working in an industry where customers don't have too much of a choice to be your customer, I mean, it's not a great position for an employee to be in if that customer is always an unhappy customer and they're stuck with you and then they're just putting up with you or they're having to deal with you so from an employee perspective having a, a great customer experience means that you're going to have happier employees more satisfied employees longer retained staff the, you know, the, the benefits are tenfold so if you are in an industry 
for any of those reasons that I mentioned, where there's a potential of captivity of your customer, don't take that for granted because there is often choice. Either that customer doesn't pick up the phone, they don't pay you, they save more money and they don't go with Ryanair and they go with someone else. <laughs> Nothing against Ryanair, by the way. Um, but, you know, there's always options. So you should never rest on your laurels if you've got a captive customer base because there, there's so many benefits to making sure you've got a good experience and an engaged customer base. For sure. And I guess the one thing that maybe I could even add to that is just simply that wherever we go now with our business as such in terms of a customer, we really, I think we do have a very similar expectation of customer service, even more so maybe now than ever before, because, you know, whether you're using, like you say, a, a service that you don't have a choice about in the sense of you are a captive customer or not, I think just people's expectations is they expect service to be much higher than it's ever been as well. So, yeah, just yeah, uh, absolutely. from that perspective uh, you- too, maybe. Yeah, we've, we've got so much choice now as customers and going back to that example of the local corner store, previously that really may have been your only option and now it still might be convenient, but we have more convenience available to us from the likes of online delivery. So for, for those sectors specifically, they're the ones who really need to watch out with regards to captive customers because the customer experience matters now more than ever. That's great, Katie. By the way, about the thing that you said before a bit, a bit earlier about people calling customer experience as this like a fluffy thing in their organization. Mm. It's so accurate and it's funny because I see it daily on social media, like in the conversations and uh, discussions on LinkedIn. Like there are some people saying like, yeah, customer experience. It's, 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 it's that kind of side thing that marketers put in their company branding or let's just put it in our value proposition, you know, let's say we're customer centric because who isn't nowadays and but it's actually a business strategy and if it was that easy or as easy as people say well we wouldn't have a podcast about it <laughs> totally <laughs> and it, you know, it is so true you know there there is still this huge perception and it's unbelievable almost because you only need to like type into google you know return on investment on customer experience and you will find like a gazillion examples of great return on investment. Um, but that I think is one of the um, most exciting challenges, I think, for a customer experience practitioner or leader is that that ability to prove that. So to perhaps go into an organization which you know has maybe never done it before, maybe does have a misconceived perception around um, activating a customer experience strategy and actually putting a resource into it, um, to, be in, to be able to go through that journey with them and customer experience, it absolutely is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, you can see quick wins and you can show quick benefits, but the reality is it's a long-term game. So you've got to be in it for the long run. Um, But when you can start to actually demonstrate the return on the investment and you can start to show how your customer experience strategies are positively impacting the benefit at the organization in so many ways, not just from a customer perspective, but your bottom line, your operational perspective, happier employees, Really, the, the benefits just never stop. But being able to prove that with numbers is often what the organization wants to see. And historically, return on investment has been tricky to showing customer experience because, again, it is that long game. So sometimes it, t- it takes a little while to be able to prove it. And then there's that whole causation correlation argument, which comes up a lot. But the reality is it's getting easier. And with all of the, the tech that's out there that a- enables us to be able to assign monetary value to improvements, 
it is becoming easier to demonstrate that and that's the real magic when you can sit in a boardroom and demonstrate the huge benefits that everybody is partaking in these customer experience initiatives is having then you know you can sit there with real pride and (laughs) come away knowing that you've succeeded yeah you're absolutely right and you know there there are so many customer experience misconceptions that the other day i was actually thinking about uh starting to create uh, memes about customer experience and maybe <laughs> even creating a different like a separate instagram account posting these memes because i think it would be quite popular um okay but <laughs> moving on there is the one thing that i really like about your approach is that you have a very stoic mindset it's a this kind of philosophy that i myself have been trying to adopt and i found that about you in in your book customer experience too um and you tell the readers to always have in the back of their minds that things can go wrong no matter how hard you try and so could you tell could you tell the audience why should why do you think the companies should plan to fail Yeah, I mean, you've you've basically just said it for me. (laughs) So you're exactly right. Things can always go wrong. We all aspire for perfection. You know, we have processes in place to support us. We have quality assurance. We have, you know, risk tolerance. All of these things are aimed to make us the best that we can be. But at the end of the day, people can fail us, systems can fail us. And we've seen very clearly over the past, well, year and a half that external environments can impact us i.e covid so anything can go wrong at any time and you know often organizations are in a place where they can deal with it so they can be reactive and they can manage that and you know typically speaking and historically speaking that's been in the form of dealing with complaints but those organizations that i believe really have a strong advantage with customer experience are those who proactively recover the experience so just like you say who plan to fail who have that ready to go and as soon as something does go wrong they're able to identify it and fix it I've worked in a few organizations uh, where we have developed a customer experience recovery strategy and it's so easy to do it's just that you've got to put a bit of time and effort into doing it and then take time and effort into embedding it within your organization Um, I do actually have a bit of a six-stage process, if you'd like me to talk you through that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Please please do, because that was actually another question that I wanted (laughs) to ask you after this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it can be done in so many ways, and it really does depend on, like, your organization, the size of your organization, and the the, the products or the service you deliver. So this is a a generalistic approach, but it's certainly something that no matter, you know, what what size you are um, or what what industry you're in, This can apply to pretty much any organization. And first up, the the important thing is to identify the issue. So when something goes wrong, if you can, the best case scenario is you identifying it before your customer does. I mean, that's the holy grail. If you can fix something before it really even impacts your customer or before your customer knows it's impacted them, then you're absolutely in for a winner. But it could be um, self-identified. It could be customer identified. And then you need to move quickly, and this is a speedy process, but you move quickly onto the assessment phase. So, okay, you know what the issue is, what's it actually doing, who's it impacting and how is it impacting them? Um, Are we talking about something pretty minimal with low customer impact or is it actually quite significant with high customer impact? Once you have an idea of the issue, then that's the opportunity to get in a room with your peers, with the people who can make decisions 
and collaborate on a solution. And when we were going back earlier talking about how you can kind of jump those hurdles of developing uh, customer centricity or, or, or embedding a customer experience strategy, I'll continuously go back to banging the drum of collaboration. Um, the more people that you can get involved in customer experience initiatives then, and the more skin in the game that they have, the better embedded they will become and the, 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 quick, the more quickly the culture will start to develop. So particularly from a CX recovery process, get the people in the room that you need to get into the room and talk about the issue and share how it's impacting the customer. Always have somebody in there who is that strong customer voice who is always saying, but what about the customer? But what about the customer? Because you'll always have somebody on the flip side saying, you know, that's too expensive to do it that way. You know, always thinking about the commercial. And that's fine because you absolutely have to have a commercially balanced approach to customer experience recovery. But that's why you need those voices in the room to create that balance. And also it's knowledge. So you may go into that meeting and talk about an issue that's impacted the customer. And you may know about point one and two, but you may not know about point three and four, which is also like hiding in the background. So the, making sure you have the right people in the room who can shed the right light and awareness on the issue and then come up with a solution collaboratively is one of the strongest game changers of a customer experience recovery process. And then after you've gone through that collaboration phase, time for action, remedy. So, you know, you know what you're going to do. Now is the time to go out and do that. So it could be something as simple as contacting your customers to, to, to tell them what's happened and apologize. Um, there's a really great um, saying, I can't remember who said it now, to put it in the notes maybe, but it's around respond and regret and then um, oh, a remedy. Respond, regret, remedy. So let the customers know. Regret is in, show apology and then fix it. It could be, if it is a significant issue, that remedy is more than just an apology. You know, you might end up having to go down the realms of compensation um, or having to fix something that's broken. But whatever the, what, whatever it is, now is the time to fix it. And then you're fixing it internally. So after you've sorted it for the customer, you've got them back in a position where actually they're no worse off at the beginning, but ideally they're better off. Now is the time to fix it internally. So you know what's gone wrong. How has it gone wrong? Root cause, analyze it. What's happened? Where where has it been broken? And then make sure it's fixed so that it doesn't happen again. And then lastly, the final piece in the puzzle is to learn. So, you know, you've gone through this process. What have we learned at the end of it? How have our customers responded to our reaction? How have our employees responded to reaction? How have they dealt with it? How have they reacted? And the biggest thing, going back to something again that we mentioned earlier, is around that cost benefit analysis of this. So a customer experience recovery process isn't necessarily cheap. You know, it does cost the organization. If you think even just from a resource perspective, getting people in a room, that's time and money. Never mind proactive contact and potentially compensation. So, you know, money is added into this equation. But what cost would have happened should you not have proactively recovered this issue? And the cost of an issue can be significant. You know, it can be customer complaints. It could be significant reputational damage. If you're a regulated industry, you could have regulatory costs like fines. So one of the best things to do at the end of this process is making sure that you're pulling data and analytics on the back of it so that you can really, again, demonstrate return on investment, show the board that this is a, a process that is like 10 times its weight in gold. 
And then making sure that as you go forward through your journey as an organization, you're learning from this. So this process becomes slicker and quicker every time. And you won't have to come up with new solutions in the future because A, hopefully your problems won't happen again. B, if they do, you know exactly how to fix it and respond to it. So it's a, you know, it's a common sense approach really, but it's just having the ability to formalize it to make sure that everybody within your operation knows about it and understands it. And to be able to support everybody within your organization with a framework and guidelines so that if something goes wrong, they know how to fix it and they know that they've got operational support or organizational support to do so. They can do it flexibly. They can do it in an empowered nature. And there isn't that whole having to work through hierarchies to get approval because you've already got that top line approval right from the beginning. Thank you, Katie, for sharing this with us. I believe our listeners will find this six-step framework for customer service recovery super valuable. Also, the fact or your emphasis on the importance of, of planning, you know, to, to for, for, for failure or or just the fact that organizations should acknowledge that things sometimes fails, that happens, and then it's normal. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if yeah. you remember. I mean, uh, uh, this is probably just quite specific to UK folk, but... It was a few years ago, um, Lloyd's TSB, the bank, was in the media quite heavily for their um, online banking services going down. And it wasn't really the fact that it went down, but it was the fact that their communication was so terrible. And then there was there was nothing on the back of it. But if they'd have been more prepared, if they'd have had the uh, like the, the proactive ability to get in touch with people and say, you know, hey, do you know what? Online service is going to be down for a little while. We're really, really sorry. We'll be back up shortly. Then they could have remediated a significant amount of the bad press that they got. But they were in the news for days and days because of this issue. Um, and that's just one example of many. And there, there are loads of great examples out there of the opposite of well, of, of like really great customer experience recovery, which just like it, it just every organization should be looking at examples of great customer experience recovery just to show how it can be done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I've got I've got one last question before we finish this episode, and I always ask, what would you what would you uh, what advice would you give to aspiring CX leaders? Ah, oh, now that is an interesting question, and there's so much um, I could give. But I think the top thing that I would say is that you need to be practiced in both customer experience, practitioner knowledge. So, you know, you at least need the, the foundations, but if you've got the experience of, you know, everything across the customer experience landscape from insight and analytics um, to, uh, you know, customer journey mapping to building customer experience strategy from working teams, that's one side of it. The flips, are, well, the other side, which is equally important, is the whole leadership piece because customer experience, in my in my experience, it really is a matter of brilliant stakeholder engagement because you can't run customer experience with just one person. You know, the customer experience, somebody in the business may be accountable for it, but everybody in the business is responsible for it. And the biggest impacting factor of running a successful customer experience strategy, in my opinion, is that ability to engage with stakeholders and really get them on your team. So you need to be somebody that is not only really versed in customer experience principles, but who is actively able to dig deep into every department, you know, sneak, get, get 
stuck in meetings, make sure you're a firm part of every conversation because there always needs to be that customer advocate voice. And yes, you can start to build out with customer champions in the organization. And soon there'll be more and more people who are practically doing your job for you. But at the beginning, especially, you need to have a really strong ability to lead, not necessarily your team, but department wide, because you need to get people on board with your strategy. And that can take a lot of work. Thank you. Thank you very much, Katie. Actually, I just remembered this recent experience uh, that I had when you were talking about different examples of customer experience recovery and what went wrong a couple of days ago with Mango. I ordered a dress online, came home, didn't fit, and I ordered home pickup return. And of course, uh, as I usually do, I missed the collection date. (laughs) (laughs) And I tried to, I tried to book another collection date, um, online on the Mango website. And for some reason, there was some error on the website and I couldn't do it. So I contacted their uh, customer service team and told them that I couldn't do it and that I need to, what happened and that I need to order another collection date or set up another collection date. And they sent me an email back, but it was clearly just some kind of AI powered response, Mm -hmm. like automatic response saying like, this is how you order like home return, a home pickup return. And I'm like, I know, I know how to do it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you that it's not working. And I got quite upset, you know, because I knew that I would have to go to the post office, which is in the town center, and I don't want to do it. In my head, I was thinking, this is the last time that I ordered anything online on Mango, because I know for sure that if I order something online, especially if it's clothes, I most 90% of the time I have to return it. And I don't want to return it when it's so inconvenient and, and inconvenient to even talk to the customer service people. And so I told them that. <laughs> and <laughs> and then se- yesterday they sent me another email apologizing that they were sorry. And they contacted the company and they uh, asked for another collection day that they will get back to me with a, with a set date shortly. And I'm like, okay, thanks. Like it was a burden to talk to them. And the, the, pr- the whole process was, was a burden. But if they hadn't contacted me back and fixed the issue, I, for a long time in the future, I would not have considered buying anything online for Mango. So good for them. Good for it's a, that is a really great example. And, you know, you, you're so right. You know, quite often now when I am looking at online retailers, I'll, I sometimes won't even go to the retailer for a specific item of clothing. I'll go to the retailer because I know that they have a really slick and smooth returns policy because, you know, that kind of experience is, is what you want, isn't it? It's ease. Um, and I had a very similar experience to you, and it's one that I continue to talk about for years. It was with um, uh, Tesco's, and um, actually, for anybody who wants to hear the full story, should go on my LinkedIn. There's a video of it. It's, um, it's it reads the full response that I got from this amazing customer experience agent. But really quick snapshot: week on week, they failed to deliver what they promised um, from an item perspective. Finally, it got to the point where I complained. Shouldn't have ever got to a complaint stage. But the person who responded, his response was absolutely epic. He had humor. He he wrote a response in the theme tune of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, very interesting. Not everyone might have been um, down with that, but I found it highly amusing. And the, 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 the more so to the point of that response is he answered every question I had he fixed everything that I intended to be fixed. He refunded and compensated. He went way over and above. 
And he just absolutely made my day. And he's a perfect example of customer experience recovery because he basically picked up an unhappy, frustrated customer, me, and turned me into a raving advocate of them because I still, every year when that memory pops back up on my social media, I post his respond and share it to the world. And I still talk about it publicly as I am right now to this day. And that's exactly what you want from a customer experience recovery process is to leave your customer in a better position and hopefully keep them coming back for more. Yeah, exactly. That's a cool story. Um, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Katie, very much for coming on our podcast. And I hope this is not the last time that you're on our podcast and we will have uh, more opportunities to collaborate in the future. Me too. If you're interested in what Katie does, definitely check out her LinkedIn profile and also her latest book called Customer Experience 2, which is available on Amazon. If you like this episode, don't forget to like, share, comment or subscribe on your preferred channel. And I will see you next Monday.